This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for the second episode of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you haven't listened to episode one yet, please go do that now. I'll be here when you get back. All right, let's snap, crackle, pop. Part two, the sand. Ask a hundred Michiganders what Dr. Kellogg's greatest achievement was, and 99.9 of them will tell you it was the invention of cereal. But they'd all be wrong, because Dr. Kellogg neither invented cereal, nor was it the thing he was most proud of. His crowning achievement, his life's work, was the Battle Creek Sanitarium, also known as the San. Sanitarium. To paraphrase Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. Sorry, bad joke. I'm really cheesy, guys. If you haven't picked that up yet, that's it's just what it is. I know that I didn't have a clue what a sanitarium was, or rather, what Dr. Kellogg meant for it to be, before I started this project. I watch a lot of paranormal shows, and sanitariums, asylums, institutions, they're all one and the same. Awful places where people who were unwell in one way or another were locked away and subjected to unspeakable torture and neglect. And that's what I was picturing one night in early May when I started eating my requisite bowl of cereal before bedtime, Fruit Loops if you're curious, and I started thinking about what little I knew about the Kellogg legacy. It wasn't much, but it was all weird. I'm always looking for stories about weird Michigan history for So Dead, and all of a sudden it kind of clicked. A fact that I thought I knew, which I actually found through my research to not be true at all, but I thought... Dr. Kellogg accidentally invented cereal while he was trying to come up with nutritious foods for patients at his sanitarium. The Kelloggs ran a sanitarium. There had to be a story there, so I started looking for information about the awfulness that went on at the sanitarium, and it led me down a rabbit hole that I quite honestly may never find my way out of. I'm just, I'm obsessed. Dr. Kellogg's sanitarium was not a house of horrors. On the surface, at least, it was a state-of-the-art wellness center frequented by the elites of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It didn't start out that way, though. The Western Health Reform Institute of Battle Creek was established by Ellen White, or Mother White, and her Seventh-day Adventist, or SDA, church on September 5, 1867, when Dr. Kellogg was still a 15-year-old boy. 
It was built on a principle Mother White had adapted following one of her many visions, which historians today believe were more likely epileptic seizures than prophecies from God. But that's another story. Mother White told her followers that God came to her and emphasized the importance of a life in harmony with dietary and lifestyle principles designed to stay well and prevent disease. She issued a health reform doctrine focused on hygiene, diet, and chastity, and this was the basis for the Institute. The first building was a two-story wooden structure attached to an old rundown house with the capability to treat 16 patients per month. It had no electricity or modern plumbing and was lit with oil lamps and sparsely furnished. It was dark and moldy and smelly and just all around unpleasant. Kind of exactly what you'd expect for a sanitarium from the 1800s to be. But people weren't committed to Mother White's Institute or held there against their will. Guests, primarily followers of the Seventh-day Adventist faith, went to the Institute voluntarily, hoping to benefit from the healing powers of water. They never returned, though. The Institute didn't have a single repeat customer. So that's saying something about the condition of the place. There were three treatment rooms at the facility where patients were treated to thrice daily baths, water sprays, and wet pad treatments. None of that sounds fun to me. The water used for all of this was pumped in from the Kalamazoo River courtesy of a windmill. So when there was no wind or a drought left the river levels low, the Institute had to conserve water and guests had to reuse each other's bath water. Which... I don't know a lot about this water cure, but I'm pretty sure that water has to be clean to cure anything. At least one would think. Suffice it to say, things were not going well for the Whites at their institute, and right about the time that Dr. Kellogg obtained his medical degree from New York University, the Whites asked the doctor's father, John Sr., to step in and take over management of their struggling health and wellness facility. He agreed to help only if he could make his son the new doctor, the center's director. Now, the White's plan was always for Dr. Kellogg to treat patients at the Institute. That's why they paid his way through medical school. But they didn't necessarily intend for him to run it. They had two sons of their own that were training to be doctors, and they likely intended to keep the business in the family. But at the rate things were going, there wouldn't be anything left for them to leave to their children if something didn't change. So the Whites agreed. The young Dr. Kellogg had some stipulations of his own, though. He would only take over the facility if the Whites would grant him free reign to run things with no interference from the church. They begrudgingly obliged. On October 1st, 1876, a 24-year-old Dr. Kellogg, fresh out of medical school, took the helm of the Institute for what was originally a one-year trial period. He walked in and basically said, Good idea here, but you're going about it all wrong, so we're going to do it my way now. I mean, what 24-year-old man doesn't think he knows everything? Especially one with a teaching degree and multiple medical degrees. But in Dr. Kellogg's case, he kind of had a point. It didn't matter where he was, he was always smarter than everyone else in the room. It had been that way since he was a young boy. The first thing he changed was the facility's name, from the Western Health Reform Institute of Battle Creek to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. He didn't like the word reform. People don't like to be reformed. True. And sanatorium wasn't right either, because he wasn't just going to be taking patients in to let them languish in their final days. 
his facility would be the first of its kind, so it needed a name all its own. So he swooped a few letters around and declared sanitarium a word, and it stuck. The day Dr. Kellogg took over, there were 20 patients at the Institute. Within a few years, he'd expanded from a two-story converted home to a sprawling city within a city that treated seven to 10,000 patients a year. By comparison, during the 10 years the Whites were running things, they saw a total of 2,000 patients. In 10 years. The sanitarium's main building was a five-story monstrosity with wraparound verandas on every level. The structure had a brick exterior, but was made of wood. The furnaces, air filtration systems, and plumbing were all top of the line. There was a 1,000-seat auditorium for lectures and a hydrotherapy center with over 50 types of baths. The sand was a hit. People from all over traveled to Battle Creek to be treated by the magnetic Dr. Kellogg, including the Lincolns, the Rockefellers, the Fords, Thomas Edison, and Amelia Earhart, who would visit the sand to refresh and recharge before her flights. But what were patients at the sand being treated for exactly? Auto intoxication, primarily, a disease that didn't actually exist at all. It was the ailment of the turn of the century and was diagnosed in patients presenting with symptoms including fatigue, depression, anxiety, digestive issues, chronic headaches, and epilepsy, among other things. The belief was that toxins in the gut, usually caused by poor eating habits, were poisoning the body, resulting in a wide range of awful maladies. In reality, many of the ailments attributed to auto-intoxication were very real medical conditions that needed to be treated individually, not as one big catch-all disease. But even though auto-intoxication wasn't real, and even though a lot of his beliefs were either completely bonkers or downright evil, some of Dr. Kellogg's holistic treatments and ideas weren't totally off-base. He believed in what he called biologic living, which combined his vast scientific knowledge with his Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. Biologic living involved regular, vigorous exercise, massage therapy, a focus on spirituality, an abundance of fresh air, avoiding stressors, lots of sleep, and lots of water. So much water. Too much water? The big nopes for those leading the biologic living lifestyle were meat, sugar, caffeine, drugs, both legal and illegal, tobacco, alcohol, sex, and masturbation, which Dr. Kellogg referred to as self-pollution. A person doing biologic living right could expect to have four to five bowel movements a day. At the SAN, you were required to keep track of your bowel movements. To help patients transition from auto-intoxication to biologic living, Dr. Kellogg had many tricks up his perfectly white sleeve. His favorite, enemas. Dr. Kellogg invented enema machines that could pump 15 quarts of water into the colon in under a minute. After the water enema came a yogurt enema. I don't don't even know what that means. Uh, In addition to the rectal yogurt, patients were expected to eat a pint of yogurt every day. Now, there's definitely something to that whole probiotic thing. We still do that today, but yogurt enemas seem excessive. And a pint of yogurt every day? I like yogurt. Blueberry's my favorite. But a pint is a lot. For those of you who are challenged in the measuring department like I am, a pint is two cups. It's a lot of yogurt. I looked it up, and 
yogurt at the turn of the century probably was not delicious, so gross. Those that opted not to have various liquids inserted into their rear portals had other options. Dr. Kellogg had a number of odd contraptions that violently bounced, vibrated, tilted, and twisted patients to free up their bowels. Gives new meaning to the saying, let's turn on the juice and see what shakes loose. That was my Beetlejuice reference for the day, and you're welcome. Emptying the bowels of his patients was Dr. Kellogg's primary focus, which, going back to the last episode, remember how I said he was always dressed from head to toe in white? That's even weirder now, right? But aside from the enema parties, Dr. Kellogg and his staff of over a thousand employees offered other services as well. Some were pretty standard and what you would expect to find at a health and wellness resort. Even today, there were outdoor sports, physical training classes, spa treatments, health lectures, massages, cooking demonstrations, and daily consultations with physicians and dietitians. And then there were the not-so-standard services. Like the enemas, both yogurt and non, electric light baths, which Dr. Kellogg invented to treat depression and insomnia, among other ailments. Electric light baths were essentially wooden cabinets lined with light bulbs that the patient would either lie down or stand in for an allotted amount of time. This artificial light was said to improve one's mood, especially during the dreary Michigan winters. So it sounds a little weird, and the first electric light baths definitely looked real weird, but they were basically just tanning beds, and I hear people say all the time that they go tanning not necessarily to get color, but because it makes them happy. You know what makes me happy? Not having the complexion of Casper the Ghost. So yeah, tanning makes people happy. Electrotherapy, also sometimes called electroshock therapy, was used primarily to treat obesity. With a contraption he pieced together from parts of an old telephone, the doctor would administer mild doses of electrical currents directly to his patient's skin. He called these sinusoidal currents. And again, this sounds weird, but as an accident-prone individual who's been to physical therapy for a number of injuries over the years, I am very familiar with E-STEM. It's a treatment that sends mild electrical pulses through the skin to help stimulate injured muscles and reduce pain. So, not used to treat obesity anymore, but still kind of the same idea. Mechanical horses, which look hella weird in photos from the early 1900s with grown men in adult diapers riding them. But again, this is something that's commonplace now. Here in Michigan, our most popular grocery store chain is Meyer, And every Meyer has a penny pony right by the exit. Her name is Sandy. And she's been around forever, so you'd be hard-pressed to come across a Michigander, even today, that hasn't ridden a mechanical horse at least once. Although, hopefully not in an adult diaper. And then there were the baths. I love a good bath, but Dr. Kellogg went a bit overboard in the bath department, as he did in most departments. There were hot baths, cold baths, electric baths, foot baths, continuous baths that could last for days at a time, mud baths clay baths, salt baths. I feel like Bubba Gump of the bath world right now. You guys get the point. The list goes on and on. There's a very, very strange movie called The Road to Wellville that's based on Dr. Kellogg and the sand. If you've never seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, I highly recommend watching it. 
It's fictional, but there's still a lot of truth in it, and it displays so many of Dr. Kellogg's inventions and treatments that would be otherwise impossible to explain. Also, we're going to be talking about the movie in a later episode, so just consider it homework. Aside from his strange contraptions, some of which bordered on torture devices, there was the nutritional aspect of the sand. Dr. Kellogg personally crafted a mostly vegan, entirely vegetarian menu of easily digestible foods for his patients. To do this, he had to create many of the foods himself, as he was light years ahead of his time when it came to health foods. I mentioned before that he invented versions of granola, peanut butter, soy milk, and of course cereal. But it wasn't just what his patients ate, it was how they ate. In the dining hall at the San, there was a big black and white sign that read, Fletcherize. Fletcherizing was the practice of chewing each bite of food at least 40 times before swallowing. That way it was already partially digested before it hit the digestive tract. I tried this just to see how hard it was. There is no way. I tried it with a bite of pizza and I was ready to gag by my 15th chew. Cannot do it. But you're welcome to try. Let me know how it goes. In an effort to distribute the foods he created to the general public and not just sand patients, Dr. Kellogg founded two companies, the Sanitarium Health Food Company and the Sanitas Food Company. I'm not entirely sure why he needed two separate companies with such similar names to sell the same products, but that's what he did. The biggest difference between them was that his brother, Will, owned 25% of Sanitas with him, and the Battle Creek Sanitarium Food Company was partially owned by the Seventh-day Adventists. While I was doing my research for this project, I actually came across an old newspaper with an ad for Sanitas in it. It said... Battle Creek Sanitarium Foods. You don't have to be an invalid to benefit from them, or a food crank to enjoy them. So, they were not great at advertising. When the water cures and weird exercises and healthy foods didn't effectively cure patients at the San, Dr. Kellogg used surgery as a last resort, often removing part of the intestine to get the digestive tract back in working order. He was said to have performed over 22,000 of these surgeries at the San. Say what you will about Dr. Kellogg's methods and beliefs, and there's a lot to say, but the man was passionate about his job. Despite the fact that he was busy 25 hours a day, he personally treated 75% of the patients that matriculated through the San, over 130,000 people in total. And he didn't even take a salary. He made his money through the sales of his health foods, his books, and his surgical procedures. He cared deeply about his patients, and he took it to heart when they died. Which, unfortunately, happened a lot. Now, it's important to remember that many people who visited the sand were already sick. That's why they were there. So, whether they died from whatever ailed them before they went to the sanitarium or from an electric bath gone wrong, who knows? Not surprisingly, the sand didn't readily share that sort of information. But what is known is that there were so many deaths at the sand, Dr. Kellogg's brother Will was known as the unofficial undertaker. One death at the sand was that of Wayne Wheeler, a prominent attorney and leader of the Anti Saloon League. Wheeler was so passionate about prohibition that he led the charge to add poison to industrial alcohol to deter people from drinking it. He believed that the government was under no obligation to protect the lives of its citizens if they chose to break the law and consume alcohol, industrial or otherwise, 
and that choosing to drink this industrialized alcohol was tantamount to choosing suicide. Somewhere between 10,000 and 50,000 Americans died as a result of drinking government-poisoned alcohol. I'm going to need to look more into that. And Wayne Wheeler was held partially responsible. He retired to escape the public scrutiny, but peace was not to be his, which some, including me, might call karma. While vacationing at his summer home in Little Point, Sable, Michigan, his wife burned to death in a kitchen fire. Her father, who was vacationing with them, had a heart attack and died trying to save his daughter. A distraught wheeler checked himself into the sand after the incident. He was said to be recuperating nicely, his condition improving, when one afternoon he asked a nurse to hand him a book. He half sat up in bed to reach for it, and as he did, his heart gave out and he died suddenly at the age of 57 just keeled right over mid-conversation. Wayne Wheeler's death was similar to that of prominent Miami physician Dr. William Gramling. The 55-year-old was being treated at the sand for a chronic illness and had just written his brother a letter saying that he felt better, but before he could send the letter out, he was dead, also of a sudden heart attack. Wealthy glass manufacturer William Porter of Fort Smith, Arkansas, was being treated at the sand for a nervous breakdown. He began threatening suicide, and he was assigned a special nurse to watch over him. All male patients had male nurses, and vice versa. He escaped from his nurse, and he was missing for eight days before a hunter found his remains in the woods near the sand. John Hayes, a 66-year-old businessman from Union City, Pennsylvania, was a patient at the sand when he was found shot to death in his room. The coroner ruled his death an apparent suicide. And then there was the spinach incident. Three patients died of botulism at Blodgett Hospital in Grand Rapids in a very short time span, prompting an investigation. That investigation led to tainted spinach that all three victims were believed to have eaten. The spinach was traced back to a canning company in California. As it turned out, that spinach was part of a large order that was shipped to several locations, so officials then had to track it all down, right, so that more people didn't die. And one of the places the spinach went to was the sand. When questioned, management admitted to officials that several otherwise healthy employees had recently died, but that if it was from tainted spinach, they didn't get it at the sand. They were known to eat outside of the establishment, But that tainted spinach had definitely been shipped to the sand. That was the whole reason investigators were there. To confuse matters further, the sand hastily put out a statement saying that no one had died from tainted spinach. Two people had recently passed at the facility, but they had died from sleeping sickness. So, contradicting what they'd already told officials. The sand simply couldn't have people thinking that their health food was killing people, and they really couldn't have people finding out that their spinach came from a cannery in California because they routinely touted the purity of their food, all of which was said to be grown, prepared, and processed on the grounds. I could go on and on and on. Stories of death at the sand are not easy to come by, but once you find them, they just don't stop. One very important death at the sand that definitely could not be explained away as a heart attack or sleeping sickness was the death of Abner Case in 1902, which we'll talk about more in the next episode. Questionable deaths aside, the sand was the place to be, and Dr. Kellogg was a bona fide celebrity. He was a best-selling author, a medical celebrity, a public health expert, and a highly sought-after motivational speaker. 
His devout followers were referred to as battle freaks, and they loved it. Dr. Kellogg oversaw operations at the San and its associated publishing company, both of which were technically still owned by the Seventh-day Adventists, and he also owned his two health food companies. But not everyone was a fan. Modern medical professionals hated Dr. Kellogg. They accused him of practicing dangerous, irregular medicine, which was honestly laughable. While his practices were definitely irregular, they were no more dangerous than the traditional treatments of the time. In the late 1800s, the life expectancy of men was 38 years, and the life expectancy of women was 40 years. It was a well-known fact back then that one of the best things you could do for your health was not seek medical treatment if you got sick. Dyspepsia, or indigestion, was treated with mercury. Opium was used for pain management. Strychnine and arsenic were used to get the blood pumping again in people with weak hearts. And God forbid you suffer from inflammation of any kind. The treatment? Bloodletting. They would literally drain your blood. Which of course we know today is completely asinine. You don't deplete the blood supply of a sick person. But sure, the water cure was the real danger. Another opposition of Dr. Kellogg's medical practices came from an unexpected source. The Whites. They had paid for him to go to medical school and handed him the reins of their health institute, and he'd made such a success out of it that the sand was a worldwide spectacle. And he got all of the glory. Mother White was reportedly not pleased that the doctor had turned her modest establishment into a resort hotel. Dr. Kellogg, on the other hand, was frustrated by the restrictions the church put on him. He was an idea man, constantly thinking of new things he wanted to do and ways he wanted to expand and improve the sand. But all of that took money, and therefore he had to go through the church. Most of his ideas were shot down immediately. So Dr. Kellogg, ever the problem solver, came up with a plan. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of business mumbo-jumbo, but basically the original charter for the Wellness Institute was only good for 30 years, and the doctor knew this. In 1897, when that charter expired, a court order naturally made Dr. Kellogg, the facility's director and superintendent, the receiver. He formed a new organization, the Michigan Sanitarium and Benevolent Association, and carefully crafted every word of the charter, being sure to designate the SAN as a nonprofit and benevolent corporation. This designation required the new organization, by state law, to remain non-denominational. When a public auction was held to sell off the old corporation's assets and property, the only bidder was the new corporation, John's Corporation, which was non-denominational. And so the SAN became a private, distinct, independent entity, no longer officially part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Whites, understandably, were furious with Dr. Kellogg. Despite the fact that he continued to run the SAN in their image, based on the principles their church taught him as a young boy, Mother White turned on him. The resulting feud was so vicious, there would be no winners, and much of what was lost could never be recovered. In the next episode, we'll talk about a series of suspicious fires that changed the landscape of a city, brought Dr. Kellogg's faith into question, and destroyed countless lives. My sources for today's episode were, again, Howard Markle's book, The Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, an article written by Greg Darty for History.com titled Dr. John Kellogg Invented Cereal. Some of his other wellness ideas were much weirder. An article written by Dr. Howard Markle for PBS.org titled 
How Dr. Kellogg's World-Renowned Health Spa Made Him a Wellness Titan, an essay written by Joe Schwartz, Ph.D., titled The Enigmatic Dr. Kellogg, Wikipedia, Find a Grave, and Newspapers.com. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries, with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both the Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find the Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. Until then, stay great, Cornflake. <laughs>